Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for February 14, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shive. On the front page, the major headline is Progress Reported in Ceasefire Talks. South Africa accuses Israel of genocide, files court request. From Cairo, Israel and Hamas are making progress toward another ceasefire and hostage release deal, officials said Tuesday, as negotiations went on and Israel threatened to expand its offensive in Gaza's southern edge, where some 1.4 million Palestinians have sought refuge. The talks continued in Egypt a day after Israel forces rescued two captives in Rafah, the packed southern town along the Egyptian border, in a raid that killed at least 74 Palestinians, according to local health officials, and caused heavy destruction. The operation offered a glimpse of what a full-blown ground advance might look like. A ceasefire deal, on the other hand, would give people in Gaza a desperately needed respite from the war, now in its fifth month and offer freedom for at least some of the estimated 100 people still held captive in Gaza. Qatar, the United States, and Egypt seek to broker a deal in the face of starkly disparate positions expressed publicly by Israel and Hamas. Israel has made destroying Hamas governing and military capabilities and freeing the hostages the main goals of its war. In Hamas' cross-border raid on October 7, an estimated 1,200 people, mostly civilians, were killed, and militants took 250 people captive, according to Israeli authorities. The war has brought unprecedented destruction to the Gaza Strip, with more than 28,000 people killed more than 70% of them women and minors, according to local health officials. Israel's offensive flattened vast swaths of the territory. About 80% of the population has been displaced, and a humanitarian catastrophe has pushed more than a quarter of the population toward starvation. In other developments, South Africa which lodged genocide allegations against Israel at the International Court of Justice, said Tuesday that it filed an, quote, urgent request, close quote, with the court to consider whether Israel's military operations in Rafah constitute a breach of provisional orders handed down by the justices last month. Those orders called on Israel to take the greater measures to... St- to take greater measures to spare civilians. Israel denies the genocide allegations and said it is carrying out operations in accordance with international law. It blames Hamas for the high death toll because the militants operate in dense residential areas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows to press on until, quote, total victory, close quote, and insists military pressure will help free the hostages. But the rescued hostages, 60-year-old Fernando Marmon and 70-year-old Louis Har, 
were just the second and third captives to be freed by the military since the war erupted. Other Israeli officials say only a deal can bring about the release of large numbers of hostages. More than 100 were, free, were freed in exchange for 240 Palestinians imprisoned by Israel during a week-long truce last year. Israeli forces erroneously killed three hostages in December, and one female Israeli soldier was freed in a rescue mission in the early weeks of the war. Israeli officials say about 30 hostages taken on October 7 have died. A senior Egyptian official and mediators achieved, quote, relatively significant, close quote, progress ahead of a meeting Tuesday in Cairo of representatives from Qatar, the U.S., and Israel. The official said the meeting would focus on, quote, crafting a final draft, close quote, of a six-week ceasefire deal with guarantees that the parties would continue negotiations toward a permanent ceasefire. CIA Chief William Burns and David Barnea, head of Israel's Mossad spy agency, attended the Cairo talks. Both men played a key role in brokering the previous ceasefire. A Western diplomat in the Egyptian capital also said a six-week deal was on the table, but cautioned that more work is still needed to reach an agreement. The diplomat said the meeting Tuesday would be crucial in bridging the remaining gaps. Both officials spoke on condition of anonymity. While the officials did not disclose the details of the emerging deal, the sides have been discussing varying proposals for weeks. Israel proposed a two-month ceasefire in which hostages would be freed in exchange for the release of Palestinians imprisoned by Israel, and top Hamas leaders in Gaza would be allowed to relocate to other countries. Hamas rejected those terms. It laid out a three-phase plan of 45 days each in which the hostages would be released in stages. Israel would free hundreds of imprisoned Palestinians, including senior militants, and the war would wind down, with Israel withdrawing its troops. That was viewed as a non-starter for Israel, which wants to topple Hamas before ending the war. But President Joe Biden suggested Monday that a deal might be within reach. The key elements of the deal are on the table, Biden said, alongside visiting Jordanian King Abdullah II, adding there are gaps that remain. He said the U.S. would do everything possible to make an agreement happen. The signs of progress came despite ongoing fighting. Palestinians were still counting the dead after Israel's hostage rescue mission as the death toll climbed Tuesday to 74. Residents and displaced Palestinians in Gaza searched through the rubble from Israeli airstrikes that provided cover for the rescue mission. Al Jazeera, the pan-Arab broadcaster funded by Qatar, said an Israeli airstrike in Rafah wounded two of its journalists, with one having to undergo an amputation. The Israeli military had no immediate comment. Also on the front page, an article entitled GOP Shrugs Off Trump's Threat to NATO Allies. 
Donald Trump's claim that he once told a NATO ally that he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want to delinquent members of the group sent shockwaves through Europe over the weekend. But in Washington, most Republicans downplayed or defended remarks that seemed to invite Russian aggression. I was here when he was president. He didn't undermine or destroy NATO, said Florida Senator Marco Rubio, a longtime defense hawk. I think I'll look at what his actions are rather than what his words are, said Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, who has been a strong supporter of NATO and of sending additional aid to Ukraine as the country enters its third year of war after Russia's invasion. Trump's, Trump's tightening grip on his party as he closes in on a third straight Republican presidential nomination, has reshaped his party's traditional defense of long-standing military alliances and rejection of Moscow going back to the days of the Soviet Union. Many who once would have responded with alarm to such remarks have largely fallen in line with Trump's priorities or have chosen to retire, as it has become clear his influence has not waned. Trump has a long history of denigrating NATO, and former administration officials say he repeatedly threatened to withdraw the U.S. from the alliance that has been central to U.S. policy for decades. One former advisor said he expects Trump to move forward with his threats if he wins a second term, but allies and supporters argue that, despite his denunciations, Trump did not ultimately abandon NATO while president and dismiss his claims as bluster or tough negotiating tactics. Just look at what he did in four years, said retired General Keith Kellogg, who served in Trump's administration and is now an outside advisor. That's the beauty of right now. Look at the track record. Some, including Senator John Barrasso, a Republican from Wyoming, credited Trump with pressuring some countries to increase their defense spending. He kept us in NATO. He didn't leave NATO. He made them do what they needed to do, he said. Even outgoing Senator Mitt Romney, a Republican from Utah, a longtime Trump critic, questioned whether Trump's comments were serious, while noting that people in other nations read it with concern and make their calculations accordingly. What Donald Trump says is often designed to elicit media and applause and outrage, and he has no intent of actually doing anything about it, he said. But it's clear that Trump and some around him want to change the alliance. In a policy video on his campaign website, Trump pledged to finish the process we began under my administration of fundamentally reevaluating NATO's purpose and NATO's mission. Asked during a Fox News town hall last month whether he would be committed to NATO in a possible second term, he responded, depends if they treat us properly. Kellogg, who serves as co-chair of the Center for American Security at the America First Policy Institute, one of the groups helping to lay the groundwork for a possible second Trump term, argued Trump's comments underscored his long-standing frustrations about countries like Germany that he believes are freeloading off the U.S. Kellogg has proposed refashioning NATO as a tiered alliance in which Article 5, 
the Alliance's provision for a collective mutual defense would only apply to members who reach their defense spending obligations. He stressed that he was speaking for himself, not Trump or the campaign, and declined to say whether he had discussed the proposal with the former president. The only time Article 5 has been invoked was after the U.S. was attacked by al-Qaeda on September 11, 2001. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, now Trump's last major rival for the Republican nomination this year, told reporters Monday she was appalled by Trump's comment and questioned why he was siding against our allies who were with us after 9-11. She told CNN that Trump talked many times about getting out of NATO behind closed doors and publicly, so that's just a fact. And John Bolton, Trump's former national security advisor and now a strident critic, said he believed Trump would almost certainly try to withdraw from NATO if he wins a second term. To those who say this is just the way he bargains with NATO, I can tell you I was there when he damn near well withdrew, he said. He often referred to getting out of NATO. He was looking for arguments to withdraw from NATO. While Trump is often criticized for praising Russian President Vladimir Putin and suggesting cuts to aid to Ukraine as it fights Russia's offensive, the former president's allies note that Russia seized Ukrainian territory in 2014 during the administration of then-President Barack Obama, and then launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022 with President Joe Biden in the White House. Democrat and media pearl-clutchers seem to have forgotten that we had four years of peace and prosperity under President Trump, but Europe saw death and destruction under Obama-Biden, and now more death and destruction under Biden. Trump advisor Jason Miller said. Biden said Tuesday from the White House that Trump's comments were dangerous and un-American, seizing on the former president's comments that sowed fresh fears among U.S. partners about its dependability on the global stage. The whole world heard it, and the worst thing is he means it, Biden added. It's Valentine's Day, and on page two we find an article entitled Miami, a common layover for Valentine's flowers. While Valentine's Day may not be known as a busy time for air travel, it is a busy time at Miami International Airport, where many of the nation's fresh-cut flowers arrive from South America. About 90% of the roses and fresh-cut flowers being sold for Valentine's Day in the United States come through Miami, according to U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. They arrive on hundreds of flights into Miami on their journey to florists and supermarkets across the U.S. and Canada. That equates to some 18,000 tons of flowers passing through Miami. This season, we transported around 460 million flowers from Ecuador and Colombia. Diogo Elias Senior Vice President of Avianca Cargo said Monday during a news conference in Miami. Among the most exported flowers this season by the airline were roses and carnations from Bogota, pom-poms, hydrangeas, and chrysanthemums 
from Medellin, and roses, carnations, and gypsophila from Quito, Avianca said in a statement. The Valentine season actually started in mid-January and ends Wednesday. During that three-week period, flowers arrived in Miami <clears throat> on some 300 flights, Elias said. That's where U.S. Customs and Border Protection agriculture specialists come into play. At the airport, they check the bundles of flowers to prevent the introduction of potentially harmful plant, pest, and foreign animal disease from entering the country. Their job is to make sure the floral imports don't contain the kinds of exotic pests and foreign animal diseases which have caused $120 billion annually in economic and environmental losses in the United States, said Danny Alonso, the airport's port director. It is a massive undertaking. Through February 8, agriculture specialists processed about 832 million stems of cut flowers, inspected 75,000 cut flower sample boxes, and intercepted 1,100 plant pests, he said. During the same time last year, specialists processed more than 861 million stems of flowers, resulting in 932 plant pest interceptions. It's one of the most demanding times for, of the year for our staff here, Alonso said. And once the Valentine's rush is over, everyone involved can take a quick breath before planning begins for the next big flower day in the United States, Mother's Day in May. We find another seasonal story on the second page. Headline, Mardi Gras Carnival Beads, a Plastic Disaster. <clears throat> It's a beloved century-old carnival season tradition in New Orleans. Mask riders on lavish floats fling strings of colorful beads or other trinkets to parade watchers, clamoring with outstretched arms. It's all in good fun, but it's also a bit of a plastics disaster, says Judith Inc., a former Environmental Protection Agency regional administrator and president of the advocacy group Beyond Plastics. The city's annual series of parades began more than a week ago and closed out on Tuesday, Mardi Gras, a final day of revelry before Lent. Thousands attend the parades and they leave a mess of trash behind. Despite a massive daily cleanup operation that leaves the post-parade landscape remarkably clean, uncaught beads dangle from tree limbs like Spanish moss and get ground into the mud under the feet of passers-by. They also wash into storm drains, where they only complicate efforts to keep the flood-prone city streets dry. Tons have been pulled from the aging drainage system in recent years. And those that aren't removed from the storm drains eventually get washed through the system and into Lake Pontchartrain, the large Gulf of Mexico inlet north of the city. The non-biodegradable plastics are a threat to fish and wildlife, Inc. said. The waste is becoming a defining characteristic of this event, said Brett Davis, a New Orleans native who grew up catching the beads at Mardi Gras parades. He now heads a nonprofit that works to reduce the waste. One way of making a dent in the demand for new plastic beads is to reuse old ones.
parade goers who carry home shopping bags of freshly caught beads, foam footballs, rubber balls, and a host of other freshly flung goodies can donate the hall to the Ark of New Orleans. The organization repackages and resells the products to raise money for the services it provides to adults and children with disabilities. The City of New Orleans and the tourist promotion organization New Orleans & Co. also have collection points along parade routes for cans, glass, and yes, beads. Aside from recycling, there's a small but growing movement to find something else for parade riders to lob. Grounds Crew, Davis Nonprofit, is now marketing more than two dozen types of non-plastic, sustainable items for parade riders to pitch. Among them, headbands made of recycled t-shirts, beads made out of paper, ACI seeds or recycled glass, wooden yo-yos and packets of locally made coffee, jambalaya mix, or other food items, useful, consumable items that won't just take up space in someone's attic or worse, wind up in the lake. And now on to page three, where we find an article entitled House Rebukes Mayorkas. Republicans vote to send impeachment charges to Senate. The U.S. House voted on Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, with the Republican majority determined to punish the Biden administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border after failing last week in a politically embarrassing setback. The evening roll call proved tight, with Speaker Mike Johnson's threadbare GOP majority unable to handle many defectors or absences in the absence of staunch Democratic opposition to impeaching Mayorkas, the first cabinet secretary facing such charges in nearly 150 years. The House impeached Mayorkas 214 to 213, with the return of Majority Leader Steve Scalise to bolster the GOP's numbers after being away from Washington for cancer care and a northeastern storm impacting some others, Republicans recouped despite dissent from their own ranks. President Joe Biden called it a blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that has targeted an honorable public service in order to play petty political games. The charges against Mayorkas next go to the Senate for a trial, but neither Democratic nor Republican senators showed interest in the matter, and it may be indefinitely shelved for a committee. The Senate is expected to receive the articles of impeachment from the House after returning to session on February 26. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, called the case against Mayorkas a, quote, sham impeachment, close quote, and a, quote, new low for House Republicans, close quote. The vote came the same day authorities said arrests for illegal crossings on the U.S. border with Mexico fell by half in January, from record highs in December to the third lowest month of Biden's presidency. Seasonal declines and heightened enforcement by the U.S. and its allies led to the sharp decline, said Troy Miller, acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. U.S. authorities repeatedly praised Mexico for a crackdown launched in late December. 
Border Patrol arrests totaled 124,220 in January, down 50% from 249,735 in December, the highest monthly tally on record. Arrests of Venezuelans plunged 91% to 4,422 from 46,920 in December. The January decline may prove tenuous. Still, it's welcome news for the White House as immigration has become one of the biggest issues in this year's presidential election. Exit polls show it is the top concern among many Republican voters in early primaries. And now an article entitled, Yearly Inflation Slows, But Prices Still Elevated. Consumer cost drivers shift from goods to services, report shows. Consumer inflation in the United States cooled last month, yet remained elevated in the latest sign that the pandemic-fueled price surge is only gradually and fitfully coming under control. Tuesday's report from the Labor Department showed that the consumer price index rose three-tenths of a percent from December to January, up from two-tenths of a percent increase the previous month. Compared with a year ago, prices are up 3.1%. That is less than the 3.4% figure in December and far below the 9.1% inflation mark peak in mid-2022. But the latest reading is still well above the Federal Reserve's 2% target level. Excluding volatile food and energy costs, so-called core prices claimed four-tenths of a percent last month, up from three-tenths of a percent in December. On a year-over-year basis, core prices were up 3.9% in January, the same as in December. Core inflation typically provides a better read of where inflation is likely headed. Tuesday's report showed that the drivers of inflation decisively shifted from goods like used cars, gasoline, and groceries, which are now falling in price or rising much more slowly, to services including hotel rooms, restaurant meals, and medical care. And finally, on page 3, an article entitled, Biden Urges Lawmakers to Pass Ukraine Funding. Speaker suggests a vote might not happen for months, if at all. President Joe Biden on Tuesday called for House Republicans to urgently bring a $95.3 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan to a vote, warning that refusal to take up the bill passed by the Senate in the early morning would be playing into Russian President Vladimir Putin's hands. Supporting this bill is standing up to Putin, Biden said from the White House. We can't walk away now. That's what Putin is betting on. But the package faces a deeply uncertain future in the House, where hardline Republicans, aligned with former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination and a critic of support for Ukraine, oppose the legislation. Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, has cast new doubt on the package and made clear that it could be weeks or months before Congress sends the legislation to Biden's desk, if at all. 
The Senate vote came early Tuesday after a small group of Republicans opposed to the $60, million, $60 billion for Ukraine held the Senate floor through the night. Yet 22 Republicans voted with nearly all Democrats to pass the package 70 to 29. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for February 14, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Next, we turn our attention to the reading of the Messenger for February 14, 2024. On the front page, we find an article entitled Teaming Up, City County Work Together on Development Projects, Corridor Plaza, Nestle Purina to Benefit from Plans. When Debbie Durham, the director of the Iowa Economic Development Authority, visited Fort Dodge this last week, she complimented the cooperation between local governments here, saying she would like to take it elsewhere. The cooperation was on display this week as the City Council and Webster County Board of Supervisors unanimously approved a memorandum of understanding that will support Corridor Plaza and the expansion of Nestle Purina Pet Care. According to the memorandum, Crossroads Plaza Development LLC of Ankeny, which owns the former Crossroads Mall site, requested additional financial assistance from the city. That assistance would be in the form of a forgivable loan to the developer to cover some of its costs for building public infrastructure on the former mall site and for redeveloping the former Yonkers wing of the mall into what is being called the Power Center, Dunham's Sport, Sporting Goods, and Maurice's, a women's clothing store, have committed to opening in the Power Center, and there is room for two more stores there. To meet that request, the Board of Supervisors agreed to loan the city $6.5 million on Tuesday. The money will be paid back over 11 years with sales tax revenue generated at the Corridor Plaza. To support the expansion of Nestle Purina Pet Care at 2400 Fifth Avenue South, the city plans to build a turn lane on Fifth Avenue South in front of the plant. The city plans to apply for a grant from the Iowa Department of Transportation to pay for that lane. The County Board of Supervisors agreed to give the city $400,000 to be used as a matching funds for the grant if it is awarded. We're excited, Supervisor Mark Campbell said about the agreement between the city and county. The council did not discuss the memorandum before approving it on Monday. Also on the front page, an article entitled Supervisors Move Forward with Essential EMS Resolution. If approved, issue would go to Webster County voters. To the average citizen, prompt, effective emergency medical care would seem like an essential service. But in Iowa, emergency medical services are not an essential service in the legal sense of in the legal sense, in the way that fire protection and law enforcement are. On Tuesday, the Webster County Board of Supervisors continued its effort to make EMS an essential in the county. 
The board unanimously approved the second reading of a measure declaring EMS an essential service. The measure must be approved once more by the board. If it wins final approval, the matter will be placed before the voters in a referendum. The voters will also be asked to approve a tax to support EMS. EMS is an essential service which would have to be approved by a 60% majority in the referendum, according to County Attorney Darren Driscoll. In Webster County, ambulance service is provided by the Fort Dodge Fire Department, Southwest Webster Emergency Medical Service in Gallery, the Dayton Police, the Dayton Rescue Squad, and Vincent Fire Department. The Fort Dodge Fire Department is the only agency with paid personnel. It is also the only paramedic-level ambulance service. Additionally, the volunteer fire departments in Badger, Callender, Clare, Duncombe, Moreland, and Otto serve as emergency medical first responders that provide care before the ambulance arrives, but do not transport patients. We need to come up with a way to do a better job in the southern end of the county, Supervisor Bob Toad said. Compounding the problem is the difficulty in recruiting volunteer emergency medical technicians. Volunteerism doesn't seem to be what it used to be, Fort Dodge Assistant Fire Chief Matt Price told the board. Dan Hansen, a member of the Southwest Webster Emergency Medical Service Board of Directors, said the agency used to have 32 crew members. Now it has 12. Price said that when the Fort Dodge Fire Department has to respond in place of one of the volunteer units, there are significant response times, especially to the southeast end of the county. Supervisor Mark Campbell said the county has, quote, amazing, close quote, emergency medical personnel. The goal is to make this sustainable going forward, he said. Again, on the front page, we find an article entitled Pleasant Valley Basketball Courts to Get an Overhaul. A pair of basketball courts that have been the site of some exciting games in the past will be receiving a complete overhaul this year. The courts are in H.C. Merriweather Park on 10th Avenue Southwest. They have been the venue for the Pleasant Valley Hoopla Tournament, contests held as part of the annual Juneteenth celebration and neighborhood pickup games. The council, city council on Monday approved a project that will remove and replace the two courts, install custom court surfaces, put up new fences, install a drinking fountain. The council hired Nels Peterson Co. of Badger to do the work at a cost of $441,500. The project is to be done by July 31. Other bidders for the job were Castor Construction, Fort Dodge, $444,500, Jensen Builders Limited of Fort Dodge, $490,425, and Mintern Inc., Brooklyn, $491,150. And finally, on the front page, an article entitled Finding Answers to Nursing Home Oversight. Iowa Republicans and Democrats Offer Competing Solutions. 
Democratic state lawmakers are pushing legislation to increase state oversight of nursing homes, while Republican legislators are advancing a bill that could reduce such oversight. Both initiatives are being advanced now due to a spate of deaths and serious injuries tied to regulatory violations in Iowa nursing homes. Republican lawmakers say the situation calls for a more collaborative approach to enforcement, while Democrats argue that the state isn't being tough enough on violators. On Tuesday, the House Subcommittee on Health and Human Services reviewed a GOP-backed bill, House Study Bill 691, that would revise the state law that requires the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing to make a preliminary review of a nursing home complaint, and unless DIAL concludes the complaint is intended to harass a facility, make an on-site inspection. The bill would add new exceptions to the requirement for on-site inspections, allowing DIAL to forego an on-site visit if the agency concludes the complaint involves an issue that was already the subject of a complaint or a self-report from the facility itself within the previous 90 days. So, for example, if a facility self-reported an incident tied to insufficient staff or failure to monitor residents, it might not face another on-site inspection if a resident complained of the same issue two months later. Another element of the bill would allow DIAL to forego an on-site complaint inspection if the agency believes the matter can be investigated by phone or through an exchange of documents. HSB or House Study Bill 691 would also require DIAL to provide semi-annual, quote, joint training sessions, close quote, in which both state inspectors and industry officials would review the most frequently cited violations in Iowa during the previous year. As part of that process, the state agency would identify for the industry any regional patterns of violations. In addition, DIAL would be required to establish a new process whereby every citation is issued to a care facility for substandard quality of care or for residents being placed in an immediate jeopardy, which would first be reviewed with representatives of the nursing home so they could provide additional, quote, context and evidence, close quote, before top officials at DIAL decide whether to issue the citations. GOP backers of the bill say the changes would help foster a more collaborative relationship between the care facilities and the state agency that's tasked with enforcing federal laws and regulations that are intended to ensure quality care. At Tuesday's subcommittee meeting, the three-member panel's lone Democrat, Representative Timmy Brown Powers, voiced support for the bill. You want to make sure our nursing homes feel like they're supporting this, she said. Right now, Iowa nursing homes are making headlines and not in a great way. And so anything that we can do needs to be, anything that we can do needs to make that a more positive transition. After the meeting, Brown Peters said she has concerns with the bill, including the provision that could result in fewer on-site inspections, 
But at the end of the day, I am not sure this bill is going to do anything, she said. I'm still concerned we're not going to have people out there investigating. John Hale, a consultant and advocate for Iowa seniors, said Tuesday he is particularly alarmed by the broad language in the bill that would allow DIAL to dismiss resident complaints if they thought they were unreasonable or if they were seen to be harassing. I've worked with dozens of residents or their family members over the years who are seen as irritants by facility management. The reality is that sometimes you have to be annoying to get any attention or action. DIAL should not be able to simply dismiss the complainants because they continue to complain about issues that are seen as unresolved. Hale also said he's concerned by the provisions that would allow DIAL to forego an on-site inspection if the same issue was the subject of a prior complaint or self-report. It seems to me that repeat complaints should be seen as a great concern rather than a nuisance, he said. Another bill, Senate File 2063, that has the backing of some Republican lawmakers, would require DIAL to launch at taxpayer expense a pilot training program in which the state would pay a portion of privately employed nursing home administrators' salary while those individuals undergo training. That bill has drawn objections from the former head of the state inspections agency, Dean Lerner. This presents a conflict on its face, Lerner said. It should be obvious to everyone that DIAL, the nursing home regulator, should have nothing to do with the establishment of or payment for a program for trainees who would themselves be under the regulatory oversight of DIAL. Democrats call for a different approach. Also on Tuesday, Senate Democrats announced they were backing several newly filed pieces of legislation to address what they called the resident safety crisis in Iowa's nursing homes. Senator Claire Celsi, a West Des Moines Democrat, said the news media has reported dozens of tragic situations and the legislature can no longer ignore this. The system that we have is clearly broken and it's time to fix it. Celsi said the legislation she and her Democratic colleagues are proposing is necessary partly because Republican lawmakers have refused to hold any government oversight committee hearings on Iowa's nursing homes and their oversight. Among the proposals are Senate File 2304, which would establish a long-term care facility safety council that would add citizen review and input into DIAL's oversight of nursing homes and would establish stiffer penalties for violations. The bill would also result in Iowa hiring 30 additional nursing home inspectors and assisted living monitors at a cost of approximately $2.4 million annually to ensure that inspections are done on a more timely basis. On page two, we find an article entitled Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day, Have Rare Collision." February 14 is a holiday heavyweight this year due to a calendar collision of events. Yes, it's Valentine's Day, the fixed annual celebration of love and friendship 
marked by cute couples, eager elementary school students, and critics who deride its commercialization. But it also happens to be Ash Wednesday, the solemn day of fasting and reflection that signals the start of Christianity's most penitent season. Why is Ash Wednesday on Valentine's Day this year? Ash Wednesday is not a fixed date. Its timing is tied to Easter Sunday, and for most Christians, Easter will fall on March 31 this year. Easter always moves annually, swinging between March 22 and April 25, based on a calendar calculation involving the moon. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops lays it out. Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday after the Paschal full moon, which is the first full moon occurring either on or after the spring equinox, March 21. To find the date for Ash Wednesday, we go back six weeks, which leads to the first Sunday of Lent, and four days before that is Ash Wednesday. This year, that happens to be February 14. Well, what happens on Ash Wednesday? Not all Christians observe Ash Wednesday. For those who do, they typically attend an Ash Wednesday church service, where a priest or other minister draws a cross, or at least wasn't what is intended to look like one, of ashes on their forehead. The distribution of ashes underscores human mortality, among other themes. It's an obligatory day of fasting and abstinence for Catholics. The abstinence restrictions are continued on Fridays during Lent, which is the period of repentance and penance, leading up to Holy Week observances. Most significantly, their belief in the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Where do the ashes come from? Typically, the ashes are from the palms used on Palm Sunday, which falls a week before Easter, according to the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Ashes can be purchased, but some churches make their own by burning the palms from prior years. For example, several parishes and schools in the Chicago Catholic Archdiocese plan to hold palm-burning ceremonies this year. Can Catholics celebrate Valentine's Day on Ash Wednesday? In addition to the candy heart and chocolate-fueled secular celebrations, February 14 is also the Feast of St. Valentine. But Ash Wednesday, with its fasting and abstinence requirements, is far more significant and should be prioritized, said Catholic Bishop Richard Henning of Providence, Rhode Island, in the diocese's official newspaper. His predecessor shared a similar message in 2018. Ash Wednesday is the much higher value and deserves the full measure of our devotion, he said. I ask with all respect that we maintain the unique importance of Ash Wednesday. If you would like to wine and dine your Valentine, please do so on the Tuesday before. February 13 is Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, a perfect day to feast and celebrate. Who was St. Valentine? The history of Valentine's Day and St. Valentine is a bit murky, but the holiday began as a liturgical feast day for a third-century Christian martyr, according to Lisa Battelle, a history and religion professor at the University of Southern California. 
And now I move to page four and the messenger editorial entitled, Is Your Family Eligible? It's time to apply for your century or heritage farm status. For those area families that have a long, proud history of farming the land, it is not too early to think about the 2024 Century Farm and Heritage Farm Awards. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag is encouraging eligible farm owners to apply for the 2024 Century and Heritage Farm Program. The program is sponsored by the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship and the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation and recognizes families that have owned their farm for 100 years in the case of Century Farms and 150 years for Heritage Farms. It has been more than 188 years since land that is now the state of Iowa was opened for settlers. The America of the 21st century is far different from the nation led by President Andrew Jackson in 1833. There is, however, one constant feature for Iowans. Agriculture is at the very heart of economic life in the Hawkeye State. Consequently, it was a fitting celebration of agriculture and the generation of Iowans who have farmed here that in 1976, as part of the nation's bicentennial celebration, the Century Farms Program was established. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship and the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation created the recognition program. It had the endorsement of the Iowa American Revolution Bicentennial Commission. Since its inception, more than 21,000 farms have been designated as Century Farms. The Heritage Farm Program recognizes those family farms that have had consecutive ownership within the same family for 150 years or more, and was started in 2006 on the 30th anniversary of the Century Farm Program. More than 1,800 farms have been recognized. To be eligible for a Century or Heritage Farm Award, a farm must constitute at least 40 acres and have been owned by the same family for 100 or 150 years, respectively. Each year at the Iowa State Fair, which is itself a celebration of Iowa agriculture, there is a ceremony honoring that year's additions to the Century Farm and Heritage Farm Honor Rolls. Though for those owners who are eligible to seek the Century Farm or Heritage Farm status, it is time to prepare their applications, which must be received or postmarked by June 1. Applications are available on the department's website at www.iowaagriculture.gov by clicking on the Century Farm or Heritage Farm link under Programs. Applications may also be requested from Kelly Reese, Coordinator of the Century and Heritage Farm Program, via phone at 515-281-3645 or email at kelly.reese at iowaagriculture.gov. Completed applications should be mailed to the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, Wallace State Office Building, 502 East 9th Street, Des Moines, Iowa, 50319. Mark the envelope to the attention of either the Century Farm Program or the Heritage Farm Program. 
The Century Farm and Heritage Farm honors will be presented August 15 during the Iowa State Fair. We encourage area farm families to consider these two unique honorary programs and submit applications if they are eligible. And finally, on page six, an article entitled Biden Supporting This Bill is Standing Up to Putin. Bill Faces Resistance in House. President Joe Biden on Tuesday called for House Republicans to urgently bring a $95.3 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan to a vote, warning that refusal to take up the bill passed by the Senate in the morning would be playing into Putin's hands. Supporting this bill is standing up to Putin, Biden said, raising his voice in strong comments from the White House as he referred to the Russian leader. We can't walk away now. That's what Putin is betting on. But the package faces a deeply uncertain future in the House, where hardline Republicans aligned with former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination, and a critic of support for Ukraine, oppose the legislation. Speaker Mike Johnson has cast new doubt on the package and made clear that it could be weeks or months before Congress sends the legislation to Biden's desk, if at all. The potential impasse comes at a crucial point in the nearly two-year-old war, and supporters warn that abandoning Ukraine could embolden Russian President Vladimir Putin and threaten national security across the globe. Yet the months-long push to approve the $60 billion in aid for Kyiv that is included in the package has exposed growing political divisions in the Republican Party over the role of the United States abroad. Biden also lashed at Trump, who on Saturday said during a campaign appearance that he once warned he would allow Russia to do whatever it wants to NATO member nations that are delinquent in devoting 2% of their gross domestic product to defense. When America gives its word, it means something, Biden said. Donald Trump looks at this as if it's a burden. The Senate vote came early Tuesday after a small group of Republicans opposed to the $60 billion for Ukraine held the Senate floor through the night, using the final hours of debate to argue that the U.S. should focus on its own problems before sending more money overseas. Yet, 22 Republicans voted with nearly all Democrats to pass the package, 70 to 29. With this bill, The Senate declares that American leadership will not waver, will not falter, will not fail, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who worked closely with Republican leader Mitch McConnell on the legislation. The bill's passage through the Senate with a flourish of GOP support was a welcome sign for Ukraine amid critical shortages on the battlefield. Ukrainian soldiers out of artillery shells, Ukrainian units rationing rounds of ammunition to defend themselves. Ukrainian families worried that the next Russian strike will permanently plunge them into darkness or worse, Biden said. The president appealed to House members in stark terms and called on Johnson to let the matter come to a vote. Ukraine supporters were also hoping that the showing of bipartisan support in the Senate would pressure Johnson to advance the bill. McConnell has made the issue his top priority in recent months, 
and was resolute in the face of considerable pushback from his own GOP conference. Speaking directly to his detractors, the longtime Republican leader said in a statement, History settles every account. And today, on the value of American leadership and strength, history will record that the Senate did not blink. Dollars provided by the legislation would purchase U.S.-made defense equipment, including munitions and air defense systems, that authorities say are desperately needed as Russia batters the country. It also includes $8 billion for the government in Kyiv and other assistance. And that does it for today's reading of The Messenger for February 14, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening.